In American society, money is a taboo topic. We're taught at a young age it's improper to talk about it, but we're also bombarded with messages about the power and importance of money in our everyday lives. And by not talking about it, we miss out on the skills and lessons we need to effectively understand and financially plan. That changes today. Welcome to Money Tales. Hosted by Sandy Brager and Cami Doder, Money Tales brings more than 35 years of combined professional experience in personal finance to demystify money and demonstrate what it's like to speak openly about personal financial matters. Join us each episode as they interview modern-day movers and shakers about how money decisions intertwine with their daily lives in order to give you better insight into productive financial conversations. Subscribe today and register for our blog, Fathom, at aspirient.com slash podcasts to increase your money mojo. And now, here's Cami and Sandy. Dr. Alicia Castillo-Holly is our guest this week on Money Tales. Alicia's upbringing in Venezuela was rooted in socialist ideals during stable times. However, the financial crisis changed everything. With $600 and two kids in tow, she embarked on a new chapter in the U.S., eventually earning her MBA and becoming a venture capitalist. Alicia's unique perspective sees wealth creation as a gateway to socioeconomic development. Alicia has given a lot of thought to socioeconomic systems, capitalism, socialism, and communism. She believes money should be used for progress, not oppression. Today, Alicia is the general partner of the Wealthing VC Fund, a venture capital firm that's gaining recognition for its strategic investments in companies with high growth potential that also champion diversity and inclusion. The fund's sweet spots are in life sciences and climate tech. Alicia's passion lies in supporting innovative solutions that promise to revolutionize these critical sectors, making a positive impact on our world. Alicia is also an advocate for women's progress in entrepreneurship. Her global training program called Women Get Funded equips female entrepreneurs with the tools and knowledge needed to secure funding for their ventures. Here are three key money topics Alicia hits on in this conversation. First, what it was like to be offered a new role that would take her from academics into business at a seven-time salary increase, and then have her father tell her not to take that job because a steep raise would require her to sell herself to the devil. Second, how helping someone she knew who lost his savings put her own financial troubles into perspective. And third, how money is an illusion. You don't need money. You need the things that you do with money. We hope you share this episode with a friend and please subscribe to Money Tales on your favorite podcast platform. Now onto our conversation with Dr. Alicia Castillo-Holly. Welcome to the Money Tales podcast. I'm Cammie Doder. And I'm Sandy Brager. Sandy, wasn't that just such a special event we had with our colleagues and friends, people in the industry, women professionals this last Tuesday? It was a lot of fun. It's nice to be able to do events in person and get a community together. The topic of this particular conversation was mentoring. And there was so much wisdom in the room that was shared and so many stories told that it was a very connective experience for me. I agree. You forget how powerful in-person conversation can be. 
I've thought a lot about mentorship. It lines in some vein around coaching when I think about coaching. And I think it's really important for all of us to have mentors, to be mentors, and the gift of both sides of that. I'm curious, Cammie, what was your biggest takeaway from the conversation? I loved one lady when we went around at the end, share one piece of wisdom. And this woman said, don't focus on your weaknesses. Don't try and correct your weaknesses. Really pour into your strengths. I think there's something innate in, I don't know, if women, all people about, I got to improve where I'm weak. I love the idea that focus on where you're strong. And that was really powerful. How about you, Sandy? One of the things that resonated with me was someone said, don't say sorry. Ever since she said that, I've been cognizant of how many times I was about to say, I'm sorry. I appreciated being alerted to that. It's a phrase I'm minimizing in my daily life because it turns out there's a need. And what I think is interesting, Cammie, about your takeaway and mine is that both of those things apply to money conversations. If there's a money matter that we're not feeling like we have the skills for, we don't have to focus on the fact that we're deficit. We can outsource that. We can find other people, other mentors to help build that up. If there's something we don't know or we think we did something wrong, we don't have to apologize. We just learn from it and move forward. And I'm glad you underscored the part of the message from the lady about outsourcing your weaknesses. That's how she put it. It was so powerful. I'm really impressed with our colleagues who led the conversation. A quick shout out to Lynn Bourne, Teresa Greenup, and April Antonio for their vulnerability, their insights, and great leadership through this conversation. They're here. I learned a lot from them, that's for sure. Well, maybe we'll talk a little mentorship today with our guest. Welcome, Alicia Castillo-Holly to the Money Tales podcast. Thank you for having me. We're really looking forward to this conversation. Alicia, would you introduce yourself and provide a couple pivotal moments that really influenced who you are today? Thank you. And thank you for having me again. I think the most pivotal moment in my life was when I was 13. I fell off a horse and I almost died. I ended up in coma. But the funny story is that I was visiting my cousins in another city. I come from a town and we had stolen the horse. Ooh, that's heavy. At night, in the middle of the night, and I was a kid, I was 13. My cousins were older. We didn't want to tell our parents or anybody. So I ended up breaking my appendix and we didn't tell anybody. So for a few days, I was very sick and my aunt and uncle didn't know what to do. And Did you come clean? Did you tell them what happened? My cousins were in shock because my parents took me back home. I was just fainting all the time. And the next day, they took me to the hospital and they said, we don't know what happened. We're just going to operate on her. And then my cousins know that I might die. And so everybody had this guilt tripping. There was not a pivotal moment for my life only. It was for everybody about telling the truth and what happened. And they talk about vulnerability. So for me, you know, after I saw myself dead, and I think that has completely changed my approach to life. I think life is a gift. I think every second is a second that I probably didn't have before. So I make the most of every single moment of my life. And I'm just inner part of optimism and joy and positive energy. And that was something. And then I have two others, but I think I'm going to pick the most fun one. I got into a fight with a monkey. A monkey entered my house in Venezuela and attacked my kids. 
the monkey was attacking my son. So my son was running. The monkey was behind him. I was running behind my son. And we were running around in circles until I finally was able to grab the monkey. And then I grabbed the monkey. The story is hilarious now. But I finally grabbed the monkey and the monkey beat me everywhere. There's blood everywhere. And I'm grabbing the monkey. I look at my kids and my kids are five and seven. They're looking at me. What is she going to do? And I don't like violence. So I started holding the monkey that is biting me. And it's like, okay, monkey, stop doing that. This is not appropriate. This is not appropriate. I look at the monkey. The monkey was screaming at me. And I look at the kids and I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm going to have to slap this thing. So I did. And I slapped the monkey. The monkey just looked at me so frail and desperate and started screaming. And I threw the monkey into the bathroom. After that, my kids respect me a lot. <laughs> my son, never had a problem with my son because I saved his life. And then I gave him a medal of honor that I found somewhere for going out of the house next door to my parents. This is at six in the morning on a Saturday, picking up my parents and telling my parents that I need to be taken to the hospital. And my daughter was five. She was frozen throughout the whole part. So it's a remarkable story. Alicia, how do you get along with other animals? I love animals. Horse, monkeys. Oh, I've had so many animals. I had a donkey. I had a tadpole aquarium. I love animals. And then after that, I took the monkey to the university where I was teaching. We had a sanctuary for animals. And I remember taking my kids there so they would not be afraid of animals. So important. And I really appreciate this idea of this Medal of Honor to celebrate what your son did. It was brave. He didn't freeze. And I think we need to do more of that, celebrate and something with an icon that he can look back and really be proud of himself. Symbolisms. Symbolism. So powerful. Alicia, you grew up in Venezuela? I did. Tell us a little bit of your backstory. When did money start having meaning to you? Well, this is fascinating to me because I grew up in a little town. My parents are socialist to this day. They don't understand what I do. I also grew up in a time and space. I was born in 61. So I grew up in the peace and love movement where Venezuela had been very, very stable, hardly any corruption, 40 years of no inflation, a very, very stable country, lots of money from the oil. And we were very fortunate because I grew up in a town. Everybody knew each other. We were barefooted. We were hiking. So money was never part of my conversation. As a matter of fact, I learned the meaning of assets and liabilities when I was 35. And I had decided to do an MBA because I wanted to understand business. And I was a scientist. I became an academic, very, very successful. Presented my first paper at 16. It was an amazing development. To be honest, that was also against me because I was just so arrogant. Oh my gosh, I was so full of myself because I was just smart. And I thought people were lazy. And then I had two kids and one has a learning difficulty. That's the one that got the Medal of Bravery, fortunately. And I realized, wow, people have different capabilities. But it took me until I was grown up and I had my kids and my kids started growing up. And I realized, well, some people had problems with languages. Some people had problems with mathematics. And I come from a large family where five. I just thought some of my siblings were lazy. But having said that, I was very successful as a researcher. It still serves me today. My area of investment is health tech and life sciences. I love going to the lab and checking that. But 
it gave me a very interesting viewpoint about how we use money and what money. The name of my company is Wealthing because I think we need to create wealth. And when we create wealth, there's no other option but to share it. And that creates socioeconomic development. So I've given it a lot of thought about socioeconomic systems, capitalism, socialism, communism. I've studied that a lot because I'm very intrigued about how can we use money for progress and not for oppression. Alicia, this is fascinating, but I want to go back to when you were getting your MBA first to have more backstory. What prompted you to get your MBA and learn more about business? I was a professor at the university. One of my students called me to ask me if I could go and meet with his boss. And they were looking for a head of product development for a corporation, for agrochemicals, for Bay and Shell. I had created by then the course on sustainable agriculture because I didn't believe that we can have organic agriculture in the tropics. It was just too complicated. To this day, I still grow a lot of my food in my house and I eat that. They were very interested in my point of view. I was writing articles. I was very involved in how do we make agriculture more sustainable. And to make a long story short, after six months of back and forth, I ended up working with them. And when I joined Bay and Shell, I learned that businesses were not the evil that I thought. My boss at the time, after I rejected the offer many times, he said to me, I'm going to give you two reasons why we need you here. And you need us. One is that if you want to change industry, you have to be inside the industry because you don't know what you're talking about. And we want people that you. And I said, I'm a researcher. I don't know business. I like my lab. I like my students. And he said, well, the other thing is that the university doesn't have any money to pay you. So we will give you a day to work at the university so they don't have to pay you and they can save money. Also, My salary was public. I work at a public university as a professor, so the salary was public. And they offered to pay me seven times my salary. Now, I've always been very, very good at negotiating my salary. I always ask much more than a guy would ask. And I don't know where I got that from, but I've always been like that. You preempted our question because you knew we were going to ask, where did you learn that? But that's great. Well, I have no clue. I didn't know what to do. And I took my 15-year-old car drove to my dad, to my parents. I was divorced with two kids. And I told him, I don't know what to do. And he's like, don't do it for the money. And I said, I'm not doing that for the money. There's something that I don't know. And he said to me, you're going to sell your soul to the devil. Because he's a socialist. (laughs) And he believed money has caused a lot of damage to a lot of people, including my parents. So he believed that money was the source of evil. And he said, just don't get involved with that. You're going to tarnish your soul. And I joined Bay and Shell. I worked for two or three years. I created an immense amount of value. I was the spokesperson for the industry. I have a soul more than the pockets. I created the Committee for Good Use of Pesticides with my colleagues. All competitors got together because we needed to make better use of pesticides in Venezuela. And I did a lot of good things. And I increased my team from two to 14. And I increased the number of launches from one every two years to 12 per year. But it doesn't end there. What happens is the situation in Venezuela continued to deteriorate and we kept reducing people. I had to fire people. People were crying. The agriculture was being decimated. 
we closed the office and I realized I needed to understand how to create businesses and I needed to understand how to avoid closing businesses. And that prompted me to do an MBA. Fascinating. So you're learning business isn't evil. Money isn't evil. You're building a successful business within the company. Presumably you're getting more financial reward with your success. No, it was a team effort. I was a very good manager and I learned a lot about total quality management was hot. So I learned about that and I brought it to the company. It was always a team effort. So my team was very well paid, my whole team. When I joined the company, sales and technical development did not speak to each other. I started involving them in our decision-making. It was really funny too. I mean, the stories. So I started doing a newsletter, an internal newsletter. It had jokes as well. I never had corporate experience before. I never saw myself as a manager. To this day, I don't see myself as a leader. That bothers me to death. It was a huge learning curve. And then I was hired as a sophisticated secretary. And, you know, that took like four months. I optimized the whole system. I automated everything. I brought a framework to the company, which was the precursor of Office. I had the first computer in my town and I had a donkey. So this little town. So after church, people would come to my house. So the kids would play with the donkey and everybody would look at the computer with an Abacus 256 that had exchange for two cows. So there's a lot of dichotomy going on. My life has been so magical. I pinch myself every day. Oh, that's wonderful. I am curious though, Elisa, just on the follow-on question, what was it like to learn about assets and liabilities at age 35 as you're getting your MBA? Did that change your relationship with money? No. I left home when I was 18 and I wanted to be financially independent. So I always knew that money did not make me happy, but gave me choices. And I worked odd jobs that have served me a lot. I lived in the slums. So I could see that people were very happy with nothing. I ate like one bread a day. So there was a lot of learning there and money didn't make me. So the funny thing is that assets in Spanish means active and liabilities means passive. I could not make any sense of that. My professor of accounting, Mike Fetters at Babson, I think I went to the best MBA, it's an entrepreneurial MBA at Babson College. And I got a fellowship there. And Mike Fetters saw me cry so often. They were wonderful. And I had two little kids. I was a single mom. So I said, oh, can we talk at lunchtime? Because I have to go and pick up my kids. And he would sit down and say, how come you don't understand this? It doesn't make any sense to me. This is passive. How could this be passive? For me, it was extremely confusing. Up until that time, I always thought about money as an income statement. You make money, you control your costs, and that's it. And then because in my life, I had a lot of up and down. I lost all my money to a Venezuelan crisis right before I left. So I ended up coming here with $600 and two kids in two boxes. It was a choice of, do I spend $30 in a suitcase or I bring the still $30? And I have absolutely no clue how I'm going to survive. I had a scholarship for tuition, but that was it. But I trusted myself and I said, you know, I make cookies. I did translations. I'll clean house. I didn't expect it to be so hard, but I always thought that you have income and you have expenses and then you save for the future. Never thought about investing. So that was all new to me. I learned most of that at BAPS and and talking to people and challenging them. It's like, that's not the way the world works. And of course they challenged me as well. Well, you were an asset in those 
conversations <laughs> because it's really important to challenge our understanding and make sure we do understand. You said money has caused a lot of damage to people, including your parents. Tell us what you mean by that. We had a farm when I was growing up. Agriculture is very risky. So we had a farm growing up. My parents lost the farm for political reasons. And I was probably three or four in front of our house. We had a battery of trucks filled with rice and it started raining. And once the rice sprouts, you can sell it. And I remember my dad going out. I was fascinated because I love plants. I was like, oh, I can't wait to see the leaves. I was fascinated with the magic of light. And my dad would just go to the trucks and they would not let move the trucks. He was so damaged by that, that he never wanted to do anything with money ever again. Because I lived in the slums, I see how people turn into prostitution. So I don't judge prostitution at all because it's a means to generate an income for some people. I'm not that lenient on drugs myself. I've just seen a lot of cases where money and power is used to damage other people. You experienced that as a young person. You are personally hit by the financial crisis that happens in your country as you're leaving to move to a new one. It's so interesting because people don't realize how people live in developing countries. So here I am, single moms, two kids, making much more than I ever imagined. So what did I do? First thing, I built a house in my parents' lot. That was the first thing I did, my house. I was completely responsible for me and my kids. We also had a horse because we like horseback riding. I involved my kids in a lot of things, but I was working a lot. And I was saving a lot of money because I had in my mind at some point, I wanted to give my kids the experience of living overseas. I came to the U.S. at 15 as an exchange student. So I really liked that idea. I thought, well, I'm going to save a lot. So I have the money to do that. When Bayer and Shell split and they decided to close the company, they gave me an opportunity to go and work overseas. And I went for some interviews and I realized that it was too hard for me being a single mom with two little kids. So I said, I can't do that. So I took a self-funded sabbatical and I became the manager of an opera house. That was a ton of fun. Money doesn't give you happiness. I know that. But I really lived off the interest rates, which was 80% at that time. And I had saved a lot of money during five years. And so the main issue for me was that there was a financial crisis waiting to happen. I'm not an economist. My friends who are economists kept telling me, get your money out of the country. And I said, no, I believe my country. I'm going to leave my money here. So eventually 60% of the assets disappear in Venezuela and the banks collapse. And I'm driving back to the opera house. I had already told them I'm leaving in, in two or three weeks. And I'm driving back and I get there and I see the gardener crying. He was mentally slow and he was crying because he had lost his savings and he had had a kid and he was saving for his kid's Christmas present. And I asked him, how much money is that? And he said, I don't know. And it was probably equivalent of $100. So here I am suffering because I'm leaving for the U.S. in three weeks. I have no clue how I'm going to go there. I just lost all my money. And just having this conversation with this guy put everything in perspective. So I took him to the bank. There's long lines. The bank just closed. And eventually I was able to help him get his money because it was under $100 or something. But for him, that was his world. And I said, you know, I'm not going to let money dictate what I can do or cannot do. And I was very naive at the moment. But then he gets a little bit worse. They fought with the monkey was a week before I left. 
So there you go, another wake-up call. Oh my gosh, the monkey. But I went to the NBA with some of the children of the people that have stolen my money. And they were my classmates. So I was sleeping on the floor because I couldn't pay for anything. I was the only mom in the program at that time. Will you say that again, Alicia? So So the banks closed down and the owners of the bank had been taking the money out of the country. Oh, I see now. So the bank closed down. My gosh. How do you trust anybody after that? Now you're a venture capitalist, which is the word capitalist in it. How do you trust the capital markets, the capital system with ad experience? Because I want to be part of a better future. I want to be in that future. In Spanish, I learned to say, los buenos somos más. The good people are more, are more common than the people that use power for oppression. And for some people, they don't see they cause any damage. They don't have any empathy. And I have friends like that. I'm in Silicon Valley. I have friends like that. We all know people like that. But the people who are making a change in the world need to bring in these thoughts to venture capital. And this is the way. There's no other way. I want to be part of that future. And so, Lisa, this buds up to something that you were sharing earlier in the conversation, and I'm hoping you can take it further. How are you doing that today? What's your secret sauce? Oh, my God. I don't think there's any secrets. I'm 62. I'm very fortunate to have lived through a lot of up and downs in venture capital. The first thing is that your tribe has to be kind people. There's a lot of people who are smart. There's a lot of people who are kind. If you meet people who are smart and kind, that's a winning proposition. And that behavior transfers through everything we do. If anybody would have told me that I would be here in Silicon Valley, manage, I manage an investment club, manage a fund. I'm going to start crying. Today, we just signed a third investment. These are all companies that have what we call the social multiplier. And I've made a lot of money investing in companies that transform the world. I don't think we need to compromise profits with meaning. So I don't invest in everything, but the things that I invest in, they're amazing companies. And the people that are attracted to invest with us, either as individuals or as institutions or family offices, that's what they like. So we are in good hands. Using your money for good, which is something to feel like that's what you did when you left being a scientist and you created the committee for the use, the good use of pesticides. This is what you've been doing. You've been using money for good. And how do you see that intention amplifying? Obviously through your work, but how do we amplify that idea that it can be used to do such good in this world? I think the first thing is not to be a slave of money. Money is an illusion. I wrote a book called The Ten Unwealthy Habits because I was fed up with people chasing money. You don't need money. You need the things that you do with money. So you don't need to hire people to do the sales. You need the sales. That opens up a whole realm of opportunities. And we do that in our portfolio companies intentionally and effectively. So we're very effective with the funds. But that is the first thing. So money is an illusion and we don't need money. We need the things that we do with money. And that opens up the whole area of opportunities. The second thing is 
that we cannot succeed at the expense of others. There are consequences. We see that. Now we're more connected. We are one human race. I'm not a woman or a Latino. I'm not Christian or Muslim. I'm not gay. I'm not old or young, fat or skinny. I am a human being. We cannot succeed at the expense of others. And we need to break that pattern that consistently is told to us, to our kids. And we need to use money for good because we can't create more money using money for good. I have a nonprofit, but I don't have to donate all of my money. And that is one thing that I learned as a scientist. So my research was in the lab. Nobody saw my research. And that's how I got into venture capital. I realized that entrepreneurship without venture capital doesn't get anywhere. I was in Chile at that time. And because nobody was doing that, it's like, okay, I'm going to have to figure out another way to do this. So I created Chile's first seed capital fund. And we were very successful because honestly, we didn't know what we were doing, but we were carving a way that was financially satisfying, intellectually satisfying, emotionally satisfying, socially satisfying. Alicia, you are an inspiration. The magic you were talking about of life just flows through every word that you say. As you talk about profits with meaning and you've mentioned financial success, I'm curious today how you use your money outside of the venture fund. So I use, and we use that in my family, what we call the Santa Claus principle. So there's something called the stewardship theory, where you do things for good because they're good, not because you need to rub your ego around that. That is also tied with something called an internal locus of control, where the opinion that you have of yourself is more important than the opinions others have of you for yourself. And this is something about values. And I share with my two kids and their family. Unfortunately, their father passed away. So it's just the three of us. And now we're nine. They got to reproduce. So it's a lot of fun. But it is being intentional in things that you do. Don't throw food away. There's people that are starving in the world. Don't leave the water running to conserve water. Recycle whatever you can. Take care of your garden. Go for a walk. Be kind to others. Americans are the most generous culture I've ever met. So generous. But they're also the less compassionate people. So an American would take money that they hardly have to donate to a place that they've never been, where there's no way that they're going to get any financial reward, any recognition, but they would not cross the street to see how the neighbors are doing. And that, to me, is very interesting. Whereas in Venezuela, you check on your neighbors, but you don't mind stealing money from somebody else or from your neighbor, but you go and check on them. Fascinating perspectives. Alicia, tell us, what's your next money conversation going to be and who's it going to be with? I'm going to talk to investors in Zurich for my fund. We're going to express what we do, how we do invest, and how do we follow our theory that investments have to be good for investors, have to be good for the economy, has to create good jobs, has to be good for the people, has to create a value, and has to be good for the planet. And there's a ton of innovation 
And there's a ton of people that are working along those lines. So we want to be part of that tribe. Would you share with our listeners, where is the best place for them to find you? I was going to say in your heart, but that's kind of cheesy. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I feel it. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. The best way to find me is on my website, on LinkedIn. I use LinkedIn a lot. Wealthy.com is our umbrella company. We have an institute. We have an investor club for individuals, and we have a fund. And I run Box of Life with my daughter and my grandkids, and we put food in boxes and send them to places. Amazing. Alicia, it's been so wonderful getting to know you and hearing your stories. And thank you for inspiring us with your stories. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to the Money Tales podcast. If you've enjoyed this episode, share it with someone you think would benefit from listening and leave us a review on your favorite podcasting platform. Your ratings and reviews help more people find our podcast. If you're inspired to gain clarity and peace of mind about financial matters, don't hesitate to reach out to our team at Asperient. Go to asperient.com forward slash start a dialogue. Or you can email Sandy and me at podcasts at See you next time.